Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So, freaks, before we start, we just wanted to take a minute and tell you how awesome you are. Yeah, we uh, are consistently blown away by your sweetness and your generosity. And this week, we, no exception, uh, someone sent us $111 <laughs> to help pay for Howard's ever-growing medical bills. Yeah. And I just I just think that's the sweetest thing. First of all, it's 111. Yeah. So, right. you know I love it. That's, that's pretty great. Uh, and they, well... Yeah, she didn't want us to say her name, so we won't. But you know who you are, and thank you so much. And this is typical of the type of thing over and over and over again, not just this example, but time and time again, you guys amaze us, and we are just so grateful for you. The end. Let's move on. Okay, yeah, it's better if we don't... Yeah, it's getting awkward. (laughs) On August 2nd, 1947, a trans-Andean passenger plane... Specifically, the Avro 691 Lancastrian, named Stardust, departed from Buenos Aires at 1.46 p.m. The Stardust carried six passengers and a crew of five on what would be its final flight. Was it flying all ziggy? No, more in a a spider formation. Uh, Stardust's last flight was the final leg of uh, a British South American airline flight, which had originated in London. Its final destination... Santiago, Chile. Aw, I want to go to Chile. The passengers included one woman and five men of Palestinian, Swiss, German, and British nationality. The weather over the Andean mountains was poor when the plane took off from Buenos Aires. The pilot had notified the airport that uh, he was concerned about the pending storm over the mountains, but that he was going to go for it. At 3 p.m., Captain Reginald Cook radioed the Santiago airport saying, quote, The weather is not good, but I will attempt the crossing at 8,000 meters to avoid the storm. Years later, a former colleague of the pilot, 
who was 77 at the time and living in Scotland, he recalled the difficulty of the route. He had actually um, flown it himself a number of times. Okay. He said, quote, you would fly at normal height to eight or 10,000 feet across the Pampas from Buenos Aires. Then you had to climb as fast and as far as you could. Everyone needed oxygen. Remember, this is back in the 40s. Mm-hmm. They didn't have pressurized cabins. If you became too iced up, you would have fallen out of the sky. The whole thing was a bit hairy. At 5.41 p.m., the pilot, along with two of his officers, radioed Los Cerillos Airport in Santiago. That was really nice. A relatively routine Morse code message saying that they would land in about four minutes' time. But then a mysterious signal was received at Santiago Airfield in Morse code. It was just one word. Stendek. Is that a word? S-T-E-N-D-E-C. No, it's not a word. The person receiving the message was not aware of any Morse code abbreviation uh, like that either. So the radio man requested a repeat of that signal. The same cryptic message came back over Morse code. Stendek. He asked them to clarify it again and again. The word came back, Stendek. That was the last anyone heard of Stardust Flight CS-5G. It answered all subsequent signals with just radio silence, and it never arrived at its final destination in Santiago, Chile. What did that cryptic message mean? S-T-E-N-D-E-C? S-T-E-N-D-E-C. The radio operator who received the messages says said that the uh, the rate at which the messages were received sped up each time okay. that uh, it was tapped out on Morse code, as if they were running out of time. More importantly, was this simply a weather-related accident, or was something more sinister at play? At the time of the Stardust's disappearance, there was considerable political turmoil in South America. Allies at the time were less than pleased with Argentina's uh, welcoming and harboring uh, Nazi war criminals. Yeah. That was that was kind of frowned upon. And again, the plane originated from London. On that plane was a diplomatic bag that was carried by what was called a king's messenger with a final destination of Santiago. I've been described as a diplomatic bag. <laughs> Hold on. Now they might have a point. Listen, you diplomatic bag. Could the <laughs> diplomatic bag have something to do with the crash? In addition, it's hard to overlook the presence of one of the passengers who was a German-born woman on the flight. And again, this was during a period of time when both America and British authorities were extremely frustrated with Argentina's sympathy toward Nazi criminals. So mm-hmm. we just don't know for sure. But what we do know is that the Stardust's disappearance was so mysterious and so complete, and no one was able to find any evidence of a crash anywhere, that eventually some started to suggest alien abduction. Oh. Yeah, UFOs over the Andes. And there have been many, many sightings of UFOs over the Andes. Could it be? But that's a story for a different time. Although it is interesting to note that there was once, a in the 1970s, I think, a Spanish UFO magazine which called itself Stendek. Interesting. Didn't take long before the citizens in Argentina and the countryside especially started telling tales of a plane full of Nazi gold that went down and crashed somewhere up on the slopes, just waiting to be found. For decades, mountain climbers sought to find the wreckage in hopes of answering some of these questions and perhaps finding hidden treasure, but no one ever did. 
until 1988, Ooh. over 50 years after the disappearance of the Stardust. I love a hidden treasure story. National treasure, tower heist. <laughs> tower heist was not a bad film. It was stupid, but fun. You know, it had Ben Stiller in it. And Eddie Murphy. I actually liked Ben Stiller in this movie, which is generally known. It's just that usually he plays a role. It's not that I don't like Ben Stiller. I'm sure Ben Stiller is wonderful. It's just usually the roles that he's in are characters that I don't vibe with. So (laughs) I think that's a better way to say it rather than I don't like Ben Stiller. I'm sure if you met him and had coffee, he'd be very nice. He would have to buy me coffee. You wouldn't go and have coffee with Ben Stiller unless he paid for it. Well, I think it's rude if if he didn't. Why is that? Well, because I'm poor and <laughs> and he's Ben Stiller. <laughs> Fair enough. For decades, mountain climbers sought to find the wreckage in hopes of answering some of these questions. About 15,000 feet up on Mount Tupangato, Roughly 50 miles east of Santiago, on the lower reaches of a glacier, a group of hikers spotted something that did not look natural. As they approached, they recognized it as a piece of machinery half-submerged in the glacier with letters engraved on it that said Rolls-Royce. Of course, Rolls-Royce was the manufacturer of airplane engines. Still are. Yeah, I didn't know that. They also found mangled pieces of metal and strips of what looked like pinstripe cloth from perhaps a pair of pants or a suit or something. And even though there had been searches in this area over the past five decades, there had been no reports of wreckage up to that point. But apparently the glacier had receded some, and the more that it did, the more the wreckage was exposed. Now, since these climbers did not expect to find wreckage, they really weren't equipped to research or to investigate. Sure. But they did report their discovery uh, immediately upon their return, and this sparked plans for a joint military-civilian expedition to revisit that location the following year. So they get all ready to go. They get the well-planned expedition put together. They're all set to leave, and then a storm hit. A huge storm came down on that side of the Andes. And And so it forced them to cancel their plans. It wasn't until January of the year 2000 that a team was able to get back to the crash site. Now, did they go there thinking that this is what they were uncovering was the Ziggy Stardust? (laughs) They had high hopes that it would be because it could uh, answer a lot of questions that they had, and hopefully even what what the heck Standek meant. But more importantly, was it uh, some sort of... um, terrorist attack uh it was a very tumultuous political time Mm -hmm. or was it simply a a weather event once the team arrived at the base of the glacier a sergeant named uh cordozo and a civilian climber uh, that was accompanying him they knelt down and gave a little prayer they had found what they were looking for it was in fact the debris of the stardust oh wow as well as body parts that had been gruesomely strewn about the glacier. And most of them pretty well intact. Yeah, well, I imagine it's cold, so... It's cold and dry. Yeah. It's like the Mayan mummies that are sometimes 1,000, 1,500 years old. Right, the Ice Princess. The Ice Princess, for example. Looks like she just nodded off and went to sleep yesterday. The body of the aircraft had been shattered, but they quickly found fuselage, a propeller engine, a piece of the wing, and an oxygen canister in near perfect condition. 
One of the guys heading up the investigation, a Major Osvaldo Quienes, said, quote, We found the torsos of at least three people. We came across several dozen bones, and among them what appeared to be the hand of a woman. Many of their remains were perfectly preserved and frozen. They crashed during a, uh, a big storm. Uh, they were quickly buried. And then, of course, in the glacier, it's going to remain, eh, you know, yeah. fresh. In all, they found in the glacier or partially exposed three human torsos, a foot still in an ankle boot, a hand with fingers outstretched and an arm, all in a remarkable state of preservation, mm. more or less freeze-dried. They had suffered no bacterial decay even after over half a century. In fact, there was a picture that was published in a city newspaper in Mendoza at the time. It was a, uh, a manicured hand of a young woman lying among the rocks in the ice, uh, perfectly preserved. They put that in the newspaper? They put it in the newspaper. Ugh. An Argentine federal judge eventually ordered DNA samples to be taken in an attempt to determine the identities of the remains and to hopefully, once and for all, identify the lost crew and passengers of the stardust. Sure. So they found no treasure, no Nazi gold, but they were able to determine that it was, in fact, a weather-related incident. Here's what they think happened. Soon as the stardust took off, a storm began developing over the Andes, causing not only difficult flying mm -hmm. conditions, but uh, also severely limited visibility. It's thought, Which is rough when you're around tall, tall mountains. Yeah, exactly. And this was a time where they had no navigation equipment like we do today. They were pretty much flying by sight in many cases. And when you don't have visibility, that's a problem. Mm. It's thought that at their highest point, the pilot may have just timed the flight to determine when he was over the Andes. And that makes sense. That, that seems to be a pretty logical assumption. Mm -hmm. And once he reached that time point, he would descend... But they theorized the plane had flown into a jet stream, which slowed the progress down. So the time that it would have normally taken them to get past the Andes only got them about halfway through the Andes. Yeah, more or less. The got pilot it. looked at his watch. He said, yep, should be over the Andes by now. I'm going to descend. But since the jet stream slowed them down, yeah. they had, in fact, not cleared the Andes. And when he descended, he flew straight into the side of the mountain. Oh. But what about the mysterious last message, Stendek? Yeah. What does it mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, it's, it's listed, but it simply says, quote, mysterious word in the final transmission from the lost plane Stardust. Its meaning has never been resolved. But there are some theories and some pretty good ones, too. You remember the message was sent in Morse code as the plane was about to crash, which would explain the rushed nature of the message. Right. Stendek is also an anagram for the word descent. So they're thinking maybe they're deprived of oxygen mm -hmm. and suffering from what do they call it? Hypoxia. So they decided to do a word jumble? <laughs> or they just, uh, they weren't thinking clearly. It would affect the function of the brain. The claim is that the radio operator may have been suffering from this, which caused him to send an unknown word. But the thing is, he did it exactly the same way three times. Right. So that's weird. But it is weird that, that Stendek is a uh, anagram of dissent. It's also suggested, and I like this explanation, the World War II pilots used this obscure abbreviation when an aircraft was in hazardous weather and was likely to crash. Stendek stood for Severe turbulence encountered, now descending, emergency crash. 
And it is true that all of the crew members had served in World War II and had uh, air service experience. So that makes perfect sense. But I would have to say that's probably my favorite explanation, but it's not the only one. Well, especially if you're not thinking clearly and maybe your brain goes back to like a more... Mm primitive form which is just pull whatever you can from from your thought noggin i don't have a lot of time come on thought noggin the simplest explanation so far is that the spacing of the rapidly sent message was misheard or it was sloppily sent in morse code determining accurate spacing between the characters is vital to uh properly interpreting the message sure stendek uses exactly the same dot dash sequence as S-C-T-I-A-R. S-C-T-I is the four-letter code for the Los Sorrios Airport in Santiago, and then the word over. So they were just starting a message to request help or whatever. That, that could very well be, but they repeated it three times. Again, in addition, the Morse code spelling of Stendek is one character off from instead spelling V-A-L-P, which is the call sign for the airport in Valparaiso, which is about 110 kilometers north of Santiago. All of these seem pretty credible to mm-hmm. me. It has not been determined for sure what, what was meant by that, sure. but I'm, I'm going with that World War II distress code. I think that that makes the most sense. Now, remember I mentioned the Argentine government ordered DNA testing? Yeah. In order to positively identify the passengers. In September of 2002, relatives of the crew and passengers who had 55 years earlier crashed into the mountain were told their DNA samples did, in fact, match the human remains that were recovered at the crash site. Well, that's something. It took nearly two years to locate relatives and to properly do the DNA testing, uh, this was back in 2002, mm. uh, the Foreign Office said that initially their attempts were unsuccessful. They couldn't find people closely related to those who had uh, perished in the crash. But finally, they found five matches out of eight, including Margaret Callwood in Nottingham, and was told that the DNA extracted from her blood had identified the remains of her cousin, Donald Checklin. She said, quote, He was my oldest cousin, and I idolized him hopelessly. I remember him in the RAF uniform. During the war period, he flew Lancaster bombers and got a medal for bringing back his aircraft on a wing and a prayer. Wow. Checklin never married, and the members of his immediate family have all passed away. So it was up to Mrs. Callwood and her brother to bring the body back to Britain, finishing the journey that took more than half a century to complete. My source material, Wikipedia, sometimesinteresting.com, The Guardian, The Independent, daminteresting.com, Geographical, and CNN. So there were a lot of things at play there. You know, why it crashed? Was it some sort of uh, international intrigue? Was it a a weather situation? Was there Nazi gold Mm -hmm. on on the plane? Uh, There was actually a rumor that one of the passengers was escaping Germany and had diamonds sewed into her coat. Oh. Uh, that was never confirmed, nor did they find anything that would suggest right. that was the case. What did Stendek mean? I think pretty much all of those questions have been answered, at least to my satisfaction. Although I was really hoping it would be UFOs. Yeah. And now, 
that thing in the middle. Have you ever wondered how much a cloud weighs? Well, scientists can calculate the weight of a cloud. They take the water density of the cloud and then multiply it by its volume. What they found was that a cloud weighs about 1.1 million pounds. So how do they float? They float because the air beneath them is even heavier. It's the podcast that reminds you of your childhood and the joys of the holiday season. The family fights at the table, drunk Aunt Jean passing out under the tree, socks for presents, having to go to church and pretending to like it. You know what? Fuck the holiday season. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Freaks, a Box of Oddities podcast group on Facebook. We have so much fun there. And it's really, it's a wonderful place for y'all to showcase your freakdom and also make us laugh consistently. Emily shared, guys... I use medical marijuana, and last night I could not stop laughing at the Little Caesars commercial. It sounds like Cat saying sticks. Send help. This shouldn't be so funny. <laughs> That's delightful. I love the Freaks of Box of Oddities group. Not only is there funny stuff in there like that, and you can just wave your, your freak flag, but the, everybody is so supportive. It's just so sweet, yeah. Of each other. It's great. What you got for me, girl? The Hoya Betsiu Forest is located on the outskirts of the Cluj-Napoca on the northern border of Romania. It spans across 250 hectares of Transylvania. This forest is a recreation destination, and in recent years, they've added a biking park to the forest, along with walking trails and spaces for sports like paintball and archery and such. This is in Transylvania. Yes. Do they have a place where you can put severed heads on a pike? Any place is a place for heads on pikes. Well, true. If you've got the time. (laughs) The land has been occupied for millennia. Part of the northeastern end of the forest is bordered by Long Valley and the oldest Neolithic settlement in Romania, believed to have been established around 6500 BCE, was discovered at the north of the Long Valley. So it's got a long history. And the forest lies in one of the most mountainous regions in Romania, which creates a challenging physical environment for the trees that grow there. So the wind and such over the years creates kind of a warped and twisted tree throughout because, you know, when tree, you know how trees work. Yeah. It can look pretty eerie, as you might imagine, which is appropriate for a place also known as the Romanian Bermuda Triangle. Oh, here we go. You're combining two of my favorite topics, Transylvania and the Bermuda Triangle. But wait, there's more. 
The forest has gained a reputation for being a home to all things otherworldly, and this goes back generations. So the forest gained wider attention in 1968 when a military technician was walking around with some friends when he spotted a UFO. This guy took a picture and reported it to authorities, but authorities rejected his evidence, calling his UFO simply a weather balloon. The communist government at the time equated a belief in the paranormal with madness, and they tied that in with state sabotage. So this guy who had worked for the military lost his job. Wow. We were not interested in you anymore. Mm. Then biologist Alexandru Sift, who was very interested in the region, went to the forest conducting years of light and magnetism phenomena research. And according to him, he gathered substantial evidence that something there was amiss. Unfortunately, most of the notes related to those experiments and that research were reportedly mysteriously destroyed after his death. That's always the way. There are so many legends about this region. It's hard to kind of nail down what's weird about it. It is said to have been named after a shepherd who went missing in the forest, which, you know, people get lost in the forest, sure. Right. But he went missing along with a flock of 200 sheep. Just gone. Just gone. According to another legend, hundreds of Romanian peasants were murdered in the forest sometime before the birth of Christ. And locals believe that the spirits of these villagers roam the land. Okay, so there's some bad mojo in this area. And it's interesting that so many strange, unexplained things happen in that particular region. That's not unlike a lot of areas like the Pacific Northwest Mm. of the United States. You've got UFO sightings there Mm -hmm. consistently. In fact, uh, one of the first flying saucer reports came from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you have Bigfoot, mm-hmm. of course, and something else that I don't I don't remember. There was also the reported disappearance of a five-year-old girl. Again, disappearing in a forest is not terribly unusual, but it's said that she did reappear five years later. That's the other thing. People disappearing in, uh, like, national parks. This girl, they said, reappeared five years later wearing the same clothes oh without God. having aged. Okay, I am digging this. There are so many firsthand reports from people who entered the forest only to come out with burns, severe rashes, headaches, nausea, high fever that they didn't have before they went into the forest. Did any of the missing people that that came back have any information as to what happened to them at all? No. Okay. No. But other people reported seeing strange lights in the forest. Dozens of people report unseen figures footsteps, non-existent faces in photographs that they took while in the forest, hearing laughter, disembodied voices, so on and so forth. Wow. There have been multiple reality TV shows about this region. Of course, it sounds interesting. Why wouldn't you want to go check it out? But the Destination Truth episode about the forest is pretty interesting because the host, whose last name is Gates, has each one of the crew members contribute an isolation session throughout the show. And in one of the isolation sessions recorded in the forest, one of the camera operators was thrown by an invisible force. And they got that on tape? They do. Or 
video. Or, yeah, however, however they, they recorded it. Nowadays, I don't know. yeah. It's actually recorded on camera from two different angles. Um, so uh, what exactly happened there? I don't know. That's, How's the quality of the video? Is it is it dark and grainy? It's always dark and grainy. Of course, it's always dark and grainy. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Well, we're watching that right after this episode. So obviously, there's a lot of strange stuff going on there. People are already um, jacked up about it. There's UFOs. People claim that there's a portal to another dimension there. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of theories. Most, if not all of this, can be very easily explained away by, you know, local legends, mass hysteria, so on and so forth. Right. But there is one really interesting thing about this forest that I think is the most fascinating because it's, well, it's real. And because <laughs> there's, there's really no explanation for it. So in the center of the forest is the Poyana Rotunda, or the Round Meadow. And it's a near-perfect circle in the center of the forest where no trees grow. Oh, like reserve parking for UFOs. Some people believe that. Valet parking for alien aircraft. Uh, scientists believe that the rotunda or the round meadow has been around for about 200 years from this spot that the phenomena that goes on there seems to radiate. Really? That's where the apparition sightings happen, where there's a lot of light phenomena, spikes in the electromagnetic field recorded. EVP, so on and so forth. And the strange thing is that they've multiple times taken soil samples and tested it to find out what's going on here. And there is no scientific explanation about the lack of growth of trees. What about radiation? Anybody check? I'm sure they check for yes, radiation. The, there is a higher than normal radiation level in all of the ground in the forest. Um, not just the circle. Not just the circle. But it's not any higher in the circle than it is in other spots. Hmm. There's no explanation for it. Not that there isn't an explanation, but we do not have an explanation for it. Gotcha. I guess that's a better way to put it. There are tons of shows and videos and YouTubes about this forest. Again, it's called the Hoya Batsiu Forest. And it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's absolutely haunting. It's, it looks ethereal. And I would love to see it in person, but maybe not spend a ton of time there. <laughs> you want to camp out in the rotunda? No, um, you know, just because of the radiation. Well, sure. Yeah. I got my information from Medium.com, Ancient Origins, the New Zealand Herald, Wikipedia, of course, and MyBestPlace.com. That's fascinating. And it reminds me of the, um, what is it? The I can't remember the name of the forest in Japan that's called the Suicide Forest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a tragic history there. But what is it about certain areas geographically that cause these types of anomalies or unusual events. I think a lot of times it just takes one person saying they felt something, they saw something, mm -hmm. whatever. And then other people kind of build on that. And or then auto-suggested. Right. It gets its energy from the people who think it has its energy, you know? Does that make sense? It does. 
And it doesn't mean that it's not supernatural. Well. In fact, that meets the definition of an intelligent haunting, that uh, the entity draws energy from people by scaring them. Oftentimes, it's places like old theaters where there's a large amount of energy there that has been stored over the years, and they draw upon that. Yeah, I mean, or it could just be something weird happened there, and then people kept saying that something weird happened there, and, you know, just built from there legends and such you know how it goes either way it's fascinating uh but but my explanation is more fascinating (laughs) sure um i did want to uh remind everyone that the philanthropy post for this month is up on patreon if you want to help support some incredible charities then uh when you support us on patreon that's that's what you're doing because every month we have a vote and 10% of our Patreon proceeds go to a charity. So uh, up for vote this month, Charity Water, Reach Out and Read, Wild Aid, and Union of Concerned Scientists. Big thanks to new patrons, Abby and R. Um, they get to vote for the first time this month. And as always, if you would like to support the Box of Oddities and any of these great causes, it's a very simple process. You just go to theboxofoddities.com, click on Support This Podcast. And we appreciate you guys so much. So much. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.